0: Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast today Lindsay Travinsky. She's author of The Cabinet and a presidential historian. She's a scholar at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies and a senior fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies. Welcome, Lindsay.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Lindsay, can you tell us about the origin of the cabinet?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the cabinet actually isn't in the Constitution, and no legislation or constitutional amendment ever created it. Instead, Washington, as the first president, created the cabinet two and a half years into his presidency because he realized that he needed the support and advice of a group of advisors that had not already been provided to him.
0: Over the course of the decades since this informal kitchen cabinet, if you will, um, how has it been legislated, if at all, in considering these advisors to the executive branch?
1: It's a great question. So there's actually still remarkably little legislation on the cabinet. Congress is, of course, in charge of creating new departments. So when they do so, they create a new department secretary, which usually means a new cabinet person. But the thing that's really remarkable about the cabinet is it's actually a a really flexible institution. And so each president has the opportunity to create basically a new cabinet environment, new cabinet relationships, and a new way of doing things. And so sometimes that means presidents are going to be really close with a couple of cabinet secretaries and treat them as their primary advisors. Sometimes a president prefers to rely more on White House staff, like the national security advisor, the White House chief of staff, things like that. But it does change every administration, and that's because so much of it isn't actually written down and relies on customs and norms.
0: That is fascinating that the infrastructure of the executive branch, um, at least insofar as we understand it most visibly, is absent from the Constitution, and yet it has significant impact in the deployment of public policy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that most people don't appreciate about the system, but also don't appreciate about how much of the system actually can be traced back to George Washington's presidency. Because if we look at Article 2, which is the part of the Constitution that does control the presidency, it's really short And there isn't a whole lot there in terms of how a president is supposed to function on a day to day basis. And so Washington really had to create those what I sometimes call fuzzy details uh, for himself. And then his precedent guided his successors. And of course, there has been evolution of those practices as we introduce things like technology. But by and large, it is that norm and custom that continues to govern what a president is supposed to do and how a president is supposed to handle situations.
0: We're speaking with Lindsay Travinsky. She's author of the Harvard University Press volume, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Lindsay, how much of the infrastructure of the executive branch has been legislated Outside of the formal cabinet, as we understand the Secretaries of Defense, Secretary of State, Secretary of Housing and Human Services, um, specifically the management of the fiscal budget of the United States of America, the Treasury um if it was not ingrained in the original fiber of the constitution how quickly did it become established later on
1: sure well as you rightly noted there has been this expansion and an explosion almost of different positions and the responsibilities of the federal government of the federal government do require those additional positions and there is a lot of legislation determining what types of positions are in charge of what types of things. Of course, there's all the different classifications of civil service. And so many of those individuals, their day-to-day responsibilities are governed by legislation and statute that controls the executive. Um, That, of course, was not always the case. The first departments, the Treasury Department, the State Department, the War Department, there was very little governing what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to interact. And it was really left to those first people in office, which were names that I'm sure would be familiar to a lot of listeners like Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, to figure out how they were supposed to handle the day-to-day responsibilities of those
0: positions. As we understand the cabinet's evolution, what are some of the profound changes that have occurred since Washington informally established it if we look at the large sweeping scope from Washington to Trump?
1: I think there are a couple of key moments. Uh, The first key moment probably happens in Franklin D. Roosevelt's presidency when there were more positions added and more departments that were created or evolved both during World War II and then afterwards. This makes sense when you have new federal government policies, you often need someone to administer them and the New Deal brought forth a lot of different programs. And then in the wake of World War II, there was some reorganization of how the military departments were going to function. So that, that particular moment saw an expansion of the cabinet, which meant that it as a governing body didn't necessarily work as well because it was more people. And anyone who sat in on a meeting with lots of people or tried to cook in a kitchen with too many cooks, knows that that's not always the most effective operating procedure. And so what we saw in Roosevelt's presidency was a tendency to consult with people individually or sort of behind closed doors, but not so much in the actual cabinet meeting itself. Uh, A similar process occurred after 9-11. There was a reshuffling of departments, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, Whenever there's sort of a big national moment, then we tend to see a shift as well in cabinet practices, who's involved, what sort of participation is required. And so that also led to the creation of the position of the director of national intelligence, which is now, of course, a very important cabinet position.
0: Let's talk about the 25th Amendment, um, the derivation of it and its relevance over these past years when the majority of the American people have viewed the president with some uh, skepticism uh, and the concerns about stability.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the 25th amendment was passed out of recognition that sometimes it's not super clear cut when a president is no longer able to serve in office and uh, conversations had come up when presidents had suffered health crises, like for example, Uh, President Woodrow Wilson was quite ill. He had had a stroke towards the end of his presidency and was really incapable of dealing with the responsibilities of office, but they actually really devolved to his wife, who, of course, did not have a constitutional position in the executive branch. So moments like that cause people to discuss what should happen if someone has not passed away, because with the advent of modern medicine, there are are lots of gray areas in between, but really needs assistance because cannot be relied upon to make the decisions for war and national security that is required of the president. And those conversations came up again in President Eisenhower's presidency because he did have several long-term significant health scares That led some people to question whether there should be a mechanism for removing a president from office, even if only temporarily, like if they were going to be under a long surgery. The problem with the 25th Amendment is that it requires everyone agree to a certain set of political values about what a president should be doing or should not be doing or how a president should comport themselves. And that is certainly in line with sort of the image that the founders had of what the president should be, a man of great honor and virtue, and that anyone else should be removed from office either by election or impeachment. But that's not necessarily our political system today. And in the very, very partisan world we live in, people are much more likely to make a choice or vote out of um, political ideology and partisan ideology as opposed to what, maybe objectively, they think is the right call.
0: As we anticipate divided government, um, we know that during the Trump administration, there were a number of appointments of acting officials, acting Secretary of Homeland Security, for instance. Um, And this went up and down departments and was largely the focus of the cabinet level and not the deputy level officials. Um, But there are questions about the legality of some of the appointment processes during this Trump administration. Can you reflect on that? Yeah,
1: this is, I think a problem that a lot of people tend to think is something that, you know, people in DC who are very focused on politics are obsessed with, but maybe isn't that important. And that is absolutely not the case there there is nothing more important than making sure really experienced knowledgeable individuals are in charge of these federal departments because they operate and they oversee some of the services that we all depend on especially in times of global pandemic also that, that so that's sort of one hat their bureaucratic you know representation hat The other hat that they wear is as an advisor to the president, and the reason the Senate was given the right to consent to those positions is because that is the way that the American people can make sure that the president is getting the knowledgeable expertise that is required for them to be able to do their job. So it is really important that the people filling the different departments and giving the president advice go through that process. And it's been recognized by Congress that that is so important that they actually passed something called the Vacancies Act, which requires the president to submit a nomination. I think it's in 210 days of when there has been a vacancy. And that's to ensure that you don't just have acting secretaries or acting deputy secretaries that are running these departments for years and years on end. And that's really come to a head in this current administration because a lot of the people that President Trump wanted to run his departments were friends or former colleagues or people that he felt were in line with his political ideas, but who most senators felt were frankly quite ill-equipped to handle the demands and the responsibilities of those departments. And so he knew they were not going to get qualified or confirmed. And so he instead put them in place as acting secretaries. And the Department of Homeland Security is a great example where Chad Wolf had been the acting secretary for over 500 days, which was a record in U.S. history and a lot of judges have actually invalidated the actions taken by Sec- Acting Secretary Wolf because it was not a legal authority to be running that department.
0: So what would be the procedure for President-elect Biden, given that he will have an even stronger opposition to a number of his appoint potential appointees, uh, when, you, when you think about the process that he could uh, potentially use to Um, appoint representatives on an interim basis um, or alternatively, if there is a legal path to um, interim acting appointments, what would that be? Sure.
1: We're definitely in uncharted waters here, which as a historian, I find it a little bit easier to write about history than to live through it. Uh, But this is certainly a historic moment because typically presidents are given, especially first-term presidents, are given a lot of leeway on their department secretaries. As long as they are qualified, they don't have any sort of legal conflict um, or grave sort of moral objections. Usually, the Senate will confirm cabinet secretaries especially. Now, Biden's in a little bit of a strange situation because Mitch McConnell um, has demonstrated that he doesn't really care about that precedent and might obstruct the nominations anyway, just because he doesn't like the secretary nominee's politics. The problem is that if Biden puts forward these nominees, they're likely to get the ones that he's suggested already, at least they're likely to get confirmed because they are incredibly qualified and they do have the requisite experience. And so some Republicans will likely break with McConnell's ranks and vote to confirm the secretaries. So if McConnell really does want to obstruct these positions, my guess is he wouldn't let the vote out of the committee. That has only happened to my understanding once in American history. And that was when uh, Andrew Johnson wanted to replace his secretary of war and that actually led to his um, the charges of impeachment against him and the Senate refused to send out a nominee from committee. So this is really a a kind of shocking situation to be in. Biden does have some leeway. He can appoint the person as acting secretary in the meantime. He can do a recess appointee. Those would eventually come before the Senate, but unless the Senate is willing to let those positions out of committee, no vote can take place. But that also means that they can't enforce The acting secretary mechanism because they're not willing to allow the nominee to come forward. So um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens because I honestly, I don't know, and we've never really been here before.
0: The Supreme Court over the course of these past four years did not rule on the specific question of the acting appointments um, that uh, did not follow the legal statute that you describe, but it's entirely plausible that that would come under scrutiny with a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that wants to scrutinize more closely a Democratic president's appointments.
1: It is possible. Of course, the Supreme Court has a lot of leeway over what cases they decide to take. And so, John Roberts has made it pretty clear as chief justice that he's very concerned about the reputation long term of the court and trying to keep it as apolitical as possible, which, of course, is impossible to keep it completely out of politics. But he is appears to be trying to do his best. So I wouldn't be surprised if he avoided that issue and left it up to Congress to decide. Um, but in theory, it is possible that it, uh, an, uh, an appeal of one of those decisions could come before the
0: Supreme Court. Finally, when we think of the recess appointment, when a recess appointment is made um, with respect to procedure and the Congress, specifically the Senate, reconvenes, that recess appointment is null, is no longer applicable. Uh, What is the process of the recess appointments?
1: So my understanding is that um, the recess appointments do at some point, um, uh, expire. But I do believe that the process is different depending on what the office is. So a judicial appointment and a cabinet appointment, and then a lower appointment, uh, tend to, I think, have, uh, different processes. Um, but they are generally expected to expire at the end of the next congressional session.
0: At the next congressional session. And that depends on the calendar of Congress. Um, Theoretically, you can just continue making recess appointments, but what happens to the recess appointee when the Congress reconvenes? Do they just lose all authority that they had previously?
1: Um, I think it really depends on what the the position is. So if a person has a lower position, I think that they revert back to that status. If they were a deputy secretary, they revert back to the status. Whereas if it is a a judicial appointment and they don't have a position, then I think that that's a different a different case. I will say I am not, I have to be very careful, I am not a lawyer. So I'm sure that lawyers would have very different, not very different, but might have a different take on this. Um, and it's always good to check with uh, a government lawyer about these questions. But uh, that is my understanding.
0: And what would you be most interested in as we see the change of administration as it relates to the cabinet um, in terms of changes between the relationship of the cabinet to President Trump and the relationship of the cabinet to President Biden.
1: Well, there's are Some things that President Biden has singled has signaled that he wants to do. He has appointed people that are incredibly experienced in their fields and come with a great deal of government and area-specific knowledge. So, for example, when he eventually points appoints a Secretary of Education, I suspect that person will have a background in education, and I think that that's always a great place to start. So, I'm very excited to see the return of expertise into both the White House and the cabinet. I think that's really important. I would be very excited to see um, some continuity. One of the things that's been most damaging by, um, by Trump's cabinet has been the constant revolving door of people coming in and out of office. And that's very damaging for the departments because it takes a long time for people to get up and running, especially at positions like Department of State and Secretary of Defense, where There's sometimes a learning curve and some institutional knowledge that has to be acquired. And so I'm looking forward to seeing people hopefully staying in those positions a little bit longer, being able to provide some calmness, hopefully restore some morale to places like the Secretary, or excuse me, the State Department, where there's been just a big exodus of civil service positions. Um, And that's, I think, very damaging for the country, both for our security, but also our position worldwide And lastly, I'm looking forward to a little bit more transparency about how decisions are made and what the thought process is. I'm looking forward to a press secretary who answers questions regularly, has regular briefings, but also who doesn't make obviously justifiably false and easily proven wrong statements from the podium. I think that will be so unbelievably um reassuring. And it would be exciting if the president was a little bit boring sometimes. That is that is not a bad thing. Boringness in politics is not a quality that should be um, people should be afraid of.
0: It would appear that this administration may have had the shortest tenure of cabinet level officers in recent history, if not in the total history of the American cabinet?
1: Um, certainly um, on the, on the sort of the broad view of things, there has been more turnover in this cabinet than any other administration, including like Theodore, or excuse me, including FDR who served almost four full terms. So that level of turnover is extremely concerning and does lead to people being in positions for a very short period of time. Of course, all presidents have turnover, but um, not to this level that we have seen.
0: The scholarship around the 25th amendment, do you think that um, there will be a pause in deliberations around that um, because of, of the change and the expectation that there will not be um, specific allegations of um, mental um, dysfunction, or um, you know, even the evidence of, of disloyalty from within the White House? Or do you think that because that Pandora's box was opened, that the 25th Amendment, not just in terms of health considerations, but in terms of uh, governing capacity and loyalty to country, that that will continue to be a subject discussed in both the legal and political circles.
1: I suspect that in the legal and certainly the academic circles, there will be an ongoing conversation about what is the best way to move forward from this current administration. Um, And that includes conversations about the 25th, because there were several moments when people questioned whether Trump should be in office either because of his behavior or his health. Um, For example, when he had COVID and was at Walter Reed, there were some questions then. I think there has been a lot of excellent scholarship on the ramifications of Watergate and President Ford's decision to Pardon preemptively, um, President Nixon, and what that meant for the process of moving forward. I suspect there will be similar conversations in scholarship um, about this time period, and um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how the country heals from this. Right now, we are so divided, and there are you know a large portion of the American population still won't even set, accept the outcome of the electoral results. That I'm not sure where that will go from here but I do have high hopes that it will, um,
0: it will improve. Lindsay Trevinsky, author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.